Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Judge Thomas McCausher, author of The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts, and 50 Ways to Reduce It. Judge McCausher, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here. So first, can you give my listeners a little idea about your own background? Well, I, uh, I've been in the courts around 40 years, and I spent about 30 of those years litigating in federal courts all across uh, the country. I did uh, pension fraud litigation. So I was after the Bernie Madoffs of the world, uh, trying to recover money for pension plans and plan participants. And I did that from California to Connecticut, from the district courts up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And then uh, I became a judge in 2013 of the Superior Court in Connecticut. And so I've seen a different system uh, for 10 years, with eight of those years being assigned to complex litigation. Uh, First in uh, civil complex litigation, a lot of commercial disputes and constitutional questions. And then uh, the last two years, I've been been the presiding judge of a complex family docket. Uh, And so I've had a, a fairly diverse career. I was also uh, in the Connecticut legislature, and I uh, worked in our governor's office briefly and had some uh, work experience related to Congress. So I've seen a, a little bit of the workings of government. So I thought I'd uh, learn some lessons ultimately and pass them on. And that's where I've been and what I've been doing. And it informs what I'm, what I'm trying to do now. So complex litigation has been your bread and butter, but this entire book is advocating for less complexity in the law. Can you tell us why you wanted to write this book and what you feel the dangers are of the legal system's current complexity? Well, with what I've expo- been exposed to, uh, it, it was my view that somebody had to write this book because I have concern, as many people do, for the strength of our, our institutions. They're under challenge. Uh, they're under question. And I believe we have to do two things uh, to rebuild faith in them. First, uh, to stop the false attacks on our system. Uh, and second, to reform the system so it lives up to the, to the expectation of the public. And so, in my view, that means that we have to make the system more accessible to the public, more understandable to the public, more responsible to the public, and above all, more focused on the people who are involved in the litigation rather than the litigation itself. Cases become cases about a case. They aren't about the underlying human problem. They're about the case itself and the tail chasing that goes on in court about the case. And and so my hope is to try to suggest ways to fix that. And I've got 50 of them. You do indeed have 50 of them. There are 51 chapters, an introduction, and then your 50 50 suggestions, and I want to get to a few, but just right off the bat, when you have shared these list of 50 suggestions with your fellow judges, are there any that they tend to really zero in on and either, you know, strongly object or be like, oh yeah, why don't we do that? What have been the, the few suggestions you've had that have really, you know, lit a fire with other judges? Well, I've had a, a experience now for two years with the complex family docket, and I did. I was asked to give a presentation to all the family judges uh, in Connecticut on the techniques that I used, and so I emphasized with them a number of things, and some of them really did take off. One of them is the process we call of admissions, in which what you do is you 
You don't have to put on evidence about things that are going to be undisputed. You simply admit them. They go into a list of admitted facts, and the judge can start the case with those admitted facts. Let's say in a divorce, it's, it's usually not disputed where the parties got married, how old they are, how many children they have. And other things are not disputed, too, which take up enormous amounts of time. It's like, how much is in this bank account? If you follow the rules of evidence, you have to have someone from the bank to come in and say, this is the bank's statement. Yes, you keep these in the ordinary course of business. It can take 20 minutes to get a bank statement done when it's done ham-handedly. But if you admit it, you, you provide the other side with the bank statement, tax returns, emails, text messages, and they simply admit what the document says. So you don't have to go through this long process of, offering each document into evidence, authenticating each document, uh, and then having live testimony to prove all that. Well, judges like that a lot. They also like, which is uh, a sometimes controversial thing uh, that I have used, which is time clocks. The trouble with a trial is that I think it's if they follow typically Parkinson's law, I believe it is, which is that time taken up expands to fill whatever is allotted to it. If you give someone an unlimited amount of time to try a case, the case never gets over. And the Supreme Court essentially does this. You know, oh, you, you have a time limit. All appeals courts do this. And I, I first got an experience with it uh, in the Federal District Court for the Northern District of California, where I had a, a trial uh, that was time limited with a time clock. You use a chess clock. So whenever one side's speaking, their their time's running. Uh, and... Uh, it worked beautifully, and I've loved the idea ever since. And uh, I think judges, uh, all of the judges I talked to like that because, especially with family court litigation, it can be endless. Well, if you don't mind, I would love to hear an excerpt from the book. Hopefully it'll give my listeners a look into, you know, why you wrote this and also your style of writing. Okay. So this is from uh, the, the beginning of the of the book in the, in the first chapter, which is where I'm explaining a kind of philosophy, and then I'm talking about how to do it. So it, it goes like this. What if judges and lawyers simply changed habits, case by case? They might embrace change if we could convince them that the system will serve them better when they act as problem solvers. Wouldn't it be good for them if we got closer to producing for the people and the businesses who come to court what they want? Swift, fair decisions that they can understand and live by, meaningful decisions, more on merits than motions, and more on the evidence than on the plausibility of complaints. Reducing needless complexity could help make the legal profession what it says it is. Judges and juries helped by lawyers sorting out people's everyday troubles. It could be fair and fast enough that people might be more willing to come to court and we can have our doubts about what to do or whether to do anything. But let's hold out hope for a bit and see what we can come up with. Let's explore the common flow of needless complexity as it winds its way through a lawsuit and creeps into legal reasoning and writing. We can start where a lawsuit starts and follow it step by step through to the courts of appeal. We'll explore ways to disentangle things as we go. 50 specific points including this chapter, all of them suggest how we might resolve disputes by openly applying human judgment to core values enshrined in law. 
And then the section goes right on to the first part of a lawsuit, which we call complaints. Well, thank you so much for reading that excerpt. I think it's giving people a good idea about, uh, you know, what your purpose is for writing this book. We are going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, I'll still be speaking to Judge McCausher about his book, The Common Flaw. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Judge McCausher. I had the feeling while reading the book that your experience in being a judge during the COVID-19 pandemic had prompted some of your thinking around this and, and some of the suggestions. And I would I would love to hear your thoughts on that or anything that sprang from, you know, when in-person trials had to stop and things became remote. Uh, how, how did that impact your thinking about ways we can reduce complexity? Well, you're absolutely right. That, it, that was the origin of what I've been doing. And uh, it was March of 2020 when the courts in, in my state shut down. And uh, so I went home and I was trying to figure out, well, we couldn't get back into the courthouse, get our equipment or anything. So I came home and started going on the, the public uh, dockets and trying to find things I could decide. And so I did as much of that as I could. And I was still left with some weeks where I had nothing to do except to consider what I've been through in cases. And at that time, I was in the middle of a very complex commercial trial, which was running up bills for both parties and the hundreds of thousands. And, it's, and it seemed it was going to be interminable. It had already lasted the trial itself, not just the case, for about two years. And it was going to last probably another year. And so I started writing down what I'd seen was needlessly complex in that trial and how we could save time and trouble. For instance, in the case I was trying, there were hundreds of exhibits. I've had cases where there have been thousands of exhibits. And each one you offer is either waved into evidence or takes about 20 minutes each. And so I started thinking about how do we, how can we fix that process? How can we stop wasting so much time piling up things that the parties don't really know why they're offering them to me. Uh, and how can we, how can we make things work? And, and ultimately I, I was able to get that trial started again in the middle of COVID remotely from, from home wearing the robe with the backdrop of the photo of the courtroom. So it just looked like I'm on the bench. Like I always am. And we, we restarted that trial and I tried to, to implement some of these uh, ideas about uh, how to handle fights over documents, how to uh, time the trial with a, with a chess clock, uh, how to uh, put what I'm going to say about the case into writing in a way that people could understand. And yeah, it all began because there was this pause long enough for me to think in COVID about what I'd been experiencing. One of your suggestions is to increase juror numbers and diversity with remote jury trials. And I'd love to hear you expound a little bit more about that. That my first reaction is that makes me nervous. Yeah, it makes but I don't right. it makes a lot of people nervous, but I don't know that my nerves necessarily are completely grounded and I just would love to hear more of your thoughts on on why that would be worth it having having jurors just zoom from home. Well, I think it's kind of exciting because, you know, one of the problems is people hate jury service. Do they hate jury service because they don't like deciding cases or do they hate jury service because they have to drive for miles, wait in a long line, go through metal detectors, get stuck in a room, waiting, 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 only to find out that there's no 
case for them to sit on and then going home angry. And on the other hand, uh, anybody I've talked to, especially retired people and others, they said, well, what if you could actually sit on a case from your home? You could, you could sit down and say, all right, I'm going to click my availability button on the judicial branch uh, website and say I'm available for a jury. And my information in the, is in there along with thousands of other people so they can come up with a mix see who's available, they can find, they can get the appropriate diversity they want by having all the information in there. They can get uh, people from different parts of the state, different part, walks of life, et cetera, and then bring them in in a way uh, in which they're much more willing to serve. Now, what people usually worry about is that, well, how do we know they're not going to be talking to somebody? How do we know they're going to be paying attention? Well, the funny thing is that after, been, after having been doing remote trials for years now, when I see people on the screen, I see them better than I actually see them in the courtroom. Uh, and it goes for jurors, too. You have, you know, you have a set of their pictures and you can click on them. Are they paying attention? Are they talking to somebody? You look them right in the face when you're looking at them uh, on Teams, which is what we use. And the same thing with witnesses. You can look them right in the face. But you can monitor jurors, in other words, very effectively over the web and, and on Teams or Zoom or whatever it may be. And so you can keep an eye on them. And then, by the way, the other thing that happens in a lot of jury trials is that the jurors are told not to talk to each other, but they do it anyway. And they can't do it when they're all, they're all in a Zoom call. They don't know how to contact each other. So they can't, they can't begin deliberating until you actually connect them into the jury room. Will they talk to the people at home? They're not supposed to. But we can't stop that now because they go home and talk to people sometimes. Many jurors, most jurors, I should say, are, are pretty conscientious about it. They, they, they don't talk about the case until they are. But there's no, there's no difference between telling them not to talk to a family member uh, or a friend when they get home from the building than to tell them not to talk about it when they're doing it remotely. So I think some of the fears are are unfounded. And, and some states have been have, have done this. They did it during COVID. And I haven't heard anything where anyone said that this has been scandalous or anything. So I, I hold out some hope for that, mostly because I think it would be a real good way for people comfortably to do some civic duty. To change directions a little bit, you know, you're a judge, you work with law clerks all the time, and you have some ideas specifically surrounding law clerking. And uh, I think there are plenty of my listeners who have been law clerks or interact with them. I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you would reimagine law clerking. Um, you know, you say there's a better home for law clerks outside of busy work and junior judging. You have a couple different places in which you you talk about the law, the clerkship system. And if you could get into that, that would be spectacular. Well, uh there are two things that I think are probably the biggest uh, problems in the system right now. One is the billable hour, which we could talk about later if you wanted. And then the other is uh, the, the is law clerk abuse, we'll call it. I should start by saying I love law clerks. Uh, they're enthusiastic. Uh, they're helpful. There's a good use for them, but we're not putting them to it. What we typically do is uh, what judges often do is to tell their law clerk, okay, here's a, here's a case. I want you to write a, write a decision, a draft decision for me. And what they teach law clerks to do is busy work about writing that decision. So 
We, if you try to pick up a legal decision and read it, it'll begin with a bunch of procedural background. The case was uh, commenced by writ summons and complaint on August 31st, 2023. An appearance was made by this attorney on this date. Uh, the motion for to dismiss was filed on that date. Endlessly, endlessly, you see that sort of stuff. That's written by law clerks because it's easy for them to write. They just look at the record of the case and then they typically go on and talk about uh, the background of the of the claims of the parties, the background factual claims, the background legal claims, this, that, and the other thing. And by the time you get to the actual decision a judge has made, you're exhausted by all this preliminary. And law clerks spend the bulk of their time doing those preliminaries. And I think it's a complete waste of time because it makes the decisions impenetrable uh, and waste time that law clerks could be do more usefully, which is a particularly in appellate courts, helping to find contradictions in the case law that appellate courts can fix and restatements of the case law that appellate courts can refine. So I think there's a very good use for law clerks in shaping the future of the law. And it's a lot better than all this fluff that that we ask them to spend their time's time doing. Well, you mentioned this, and I do think that we should get to it because if there's anything that seems particularly awful and daunting about the business of law, to me, it's the billable hour. And this is, you say, lawyers must discard outdated business models. So let's get into it. Uh, the billable hour must die. What what should we do instead? It depends on the kind of a case, but uh, a what I did most of my time is I, I either had my attorney's fees paid for by the villain in the cases I was chose choosing, chasing, uh, or I would take a percentage of a, of a recovery. So the easiest model is that a lawyer bringing a lawsuit takes a percentage of a cover of recovery, uh, and so therefore it doesn't come out directly of the client's pocket to begin with. On the other side of the case, my view is we'd be better off with coming up with a minimum flat fee amount. So you negotiate that at the beginning of the case. You say, all right, here's the minimum amount that I would take to try this case. And then you negotiate a series of win bonuses. Do I get the case dismissed on jurisdictional grounds right away? Do I win a summary judgment? Do I settle the case? Uh, do I win a trial? And each one of those would have a set of kind of win bonuses associated with them. And I think that 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 model would be much better than a model that incentivizes, whether it's unconscious or not. And I'm not trying to accuse lawyers of necessarily consciously doing this, but unconsciously it incentivizes them under the billable hourly system to spend a lot of hours, write excessively long briefs, have the trial be longer. Again, it may be subconscious, but I think it's strangling us. We're going to take another break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, I'm going to ask about your family court-specific advice. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, with Judge McCausher, author of The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts, and 50 Ways to Reduce It. And Judge, you have been deciding family court cases for a while now, and I think that family court is one of those times that the average citizen is most likely to encounter our legal system and its its weirdnesses. So would love to hear 
specifically what your advice for family court situations is to get rid of some of this complexity? Well, family court is a, is a classic example of the areas in which uh, needless complexity is, is strangling people. And the problem in family court is that most of the parties on, on both sides are paying by the hour. Uh, and I see cases that have never got to trial that I've had in front of me where parties are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars on a case and never having it get tried because there is so much preliminary skirmishing that goes on and so much anger feeding it that enormous waste uh, results. And this is, I'm talking about for people who don't have that money. So you see people borrowing, you see people mortgaging their homes, you see people most painfully being bankrupted by the process. And this has led people to hate the family court system and hate the family court judges. And I think we we have to fix those things by doing things uh, with discovery in particular. Discovery, the gathering of evidence process, burns up most of the money in a case. Uh, it's about the, taking people's sworn testimony in advance of trial, gathering documents, but mostly the time gets wasted over feuding over how the documents are being gathered, uh, et cetera. And I substituted for that a series of my own discovery orders. Normally, the lawyers do this on their own, and they simply serve requests on the other side. The other side inevitably objects to it. They go back and forth for months and months, and then they file motions in court, and then the court has to hear the case, the the discovery requests, and then it has to issue orders. I simply issue them myself at the outset of the case, uh, and so that we don't have all the back and forth that burns up most of the money. So I order them to produce certain documents to each other and to allow certain questions and answers, but I control it tightly because that's where all the money's getting spent. So the discovery process, the admission process I mentioned earlier, the time clock process, and then the other thing that I do is I uh, I get right to deciding the case when it's over. I don't allow attorneys to file post-trial briefs. What I do is have long question and answer sessions with them where we create a dialogue back and forth about the case, and then I decide it. So usually I can get a decision out in a case in a week when the average time, the time that's typical of a decision by a a judge uh, in our system is four months. So I I, I desperately uh, hope that we're going to change that system because that's the one hurting people the most because it comes right out of their personal uh, pocketbooks. And when you're trying to decide matters for the good of a child, it's it's not good for the child for their parents to be bankrupt. Absolutely. Nor is it uh, good for them to have them perpetually at war with each other. So I, I have cases, I have, I've had cases uh, in front of me recently, which they've been pending in the court for four years. So there are no orders, and there are no orders in it as to who uh, will have the children when, who's going to make decisions for the children how much money the children uh, are going to get and need. And sometimes the two parties are, are stuck living in the same house with each other because there have been no orders about who gets temporary uh, custody of the house, the children, et cetera. It's, it's, it's uh, scary, but there are ways to fix it is my point. Many of your suggestions are specifically 
things that judges can do in their courtrooms, but you're not only aiming this at judges. Uh, many of your suggestions would be helpful for lawyers to hear. Uh, for example, cross-examine crisply, crushingly, or not at all. You have a lot of advice for how attorneys can keep up the pace of trials and, and reduce complexity. Are there any in particular that you'd like to expound on more? Well, that, that one and the, the way of examining uh, witnesses is a favorite of mine because uh, lawyers need some drilling in it to try and make it work. Cross-examination uh, is often fumbled because people call, uh, uh, ask witnesses questions which they don't know the answer to and they don't actually want the answer to, but they haven't thought it out in advance enough to, uh, to do it. And so some of the best cross-examination I've, I've, I've had uh, in witnesses as an attorney is to say, I don't have any questions for this witness. If you have <laughs> questions for them, it should be short, sharp, unavoidable. Another place, uh, and probably an even bigger place that I've tried to give suggestions to lawyers, is about briefing. Briefs are written a lot the same as our judges' decisions, and often they're written by the same people because law clerks finish their law clerkships, and then they go out and they're the early associates at the, the, at the law firms. And what they do is write briefs, and they write them the way they write decisions with uh, painful penitential sections about the background of the case, the background of the law, uh, and endlessly. And so you, you just, as a judge, when you're trying to read this thing, it's 50 pages or something, you usually find, and I, I don't think I'm exaggerating, about one or two pages of useful information in the brief. So I've tried to, to urge uh, attorneys to get to the point up front and focus on the thing on which the decision pivots. Go round it, round it, round it, and forget everything else. You don't need it. Uh, and, and that's my advice for judges. It's my advice for lawyers so we can talk about actually what's important. And there's a document that lawyers file at the beginning of a lawsuit. It, it's the lawsuit itself. It's called the complaint. And they have the same problems. I just, I just opened one up yesterday and was reading. It was about 50 pages long. And it was actually fairly well written. The problem was is that it simply didn't address what the lawsuit was actually about. And the lawsuit turned on the language of a contract. And, all, and yet the lawsuit complaint didn't mention what that language is. Oh, and wow. It went round and round it, but never, it should have been in the, this is, these are the words we're relying on in the contract, but they didn't. But that's typical. Well, I'm going to pivot just a little bit because I don't want to end our conversation without talking about one of the other major aspects of the book, which is you have cartoons within it. And I'd love to hear the process of you illustrating this book. You, your publisher's Brandeis University. I'm just curious how involved were they about finding these cartoons? I would just love to hear about the illustrations. Thanks. That's a fun part of the common flaw that I did. And I, one, of the, one of the reasons I did the cartoons is because I'm trying to do this gently. I'm, I'm a friend. I'm a, I'm a great lover of the legal system. I'm, I'm trying to, to pick it up and brush it off, not bury it. And I, so the cartoons were my idea of, of just trying to, to tease gently. Uh, and I talked about it with Sue Raymond, my uh, publisher at uh, Brandeis. And uh, I originally, because I'm an amateur artist, 
thought I could draw some of these. And when I showed her to them, she said, you know, there's a lot of good cartoons out there in the marketplace. There's no reason for you to struggle over these yourself. So I got the message and went out and, uh, and bought the rights to the cartoons because I found, as she suggested, that there were so many cartoons out there about lawyers and courts and they were right on point with the points I was trying to make. So that was a fun aspect of it. And I'm glad they're in there because, again, it's, it's to try to approach this with a light heart and from a friendly perspective. They were a, a, a fun aspect, but also I found them really instructive. Sometimes in just the illustration and then the pithy, you know, pithy one-liner underneath, it helped grasp the concept that you were going for explaining you're like oh yeah no i i absolutely understand how that would how that would fit into the situation being shown by this cartoon yeah i was happy to find so many out there that just it just absolutely fit you have written before about the fact that uh, you are a diverse learner uh, you have adhd i have adhd i was wondering if you feel like being neurodiverse has helped you look at the current system and identify places where this needless complexity is really making it hard for the average person uh, to understand what's going on or to participate in, in the trials that are impacting their life. I just would love to, if you have any thoughts about what your particular way of thinking and the way your brain works may have helped produce in this process. Well, that's such a great question because learning and, and growing up and, and, and studying uh, I always found it, I was always the kid squirming in their chair reading and uh, trying to, to keep my, my focus and attention where it belonged. And as I went through law school, I started to pick up the habit of, of trying to understand what a case was about without plodding through all the stuff that was in the way of what the case was about. And so I learned to read legal decisions by recognizing the parts that were fluff from the parts that were real and being able to simply flip open a decision in any law book, look at it and get right to where the key part of the decision was. And I found that that, that skill in understanding what's important and what's not informed my attitude toward what we should be focusing on in court and what we should not. And it, it grew out of, I don't want to say impatience, but my desire to get to the heart of a matter rather than fiddling around the edges. So I definitely think my, my, the way I had learned as a child and the way I ultimately learned to read and study and learn in law school translated itself into both my practice and, uh, and to this book very much so. Well, this book is coming out late in September. I was wondering, do you have any ideas for where you go from here once it's out in the world? Well, I'm trying to, I want to take the common flaw around as much as I can because what I want to do is to reach people who might think about this. And it includes the public. It includes people who serve on judiciary committees and legislatures as well, in legislative bodies. They're the people who appoint judges and question people who are going to be judges, and I, I want to include them. But obviously, judges and lawyers are uh, a principal group of people that I want to reach, and I'm going to try to reach them by reaching them through organizations like the American Bar Association. Uh, for many years, I was involved in the, uh, in the section on uh, em employee benefits, and I was a chair of the, of the 
Committee on Employee Benefits and did a lot of speaking around. And I'd like to do that sort of thing and network through those things, all the state bar associations and the major law firms. And I've been developing a, a, a list of people to to send copies of the book to and to offer to come and speak. And I just like to do that. I think that, you know, you, when you spend a long time learning something and you really feel comfortable, you know it, that you should pass the lessons on. And that's my goal to reach people who can help me uh, pass those lessons on and hopefully, uh, and hopefully build the faith that we ought to have in our system uh, to a higher level. And uh, I, I should say in connection with that, I just can't resist saying that people should remember though we have a, a fundamentally honest legal system. My criticism is that it has to function better, but I'm proud of the people I've met in the system that we've got an honest legal system and all you have to do is, is look to other countries in the world to recognize just how honest it is. Well, if people who are listening right now are interested in getting in touch or picking up your book, first of all, I think we should probably spell your last name so that uh, when they're searching for it, they can they can find the common flaw. How could they How could they do that? Is there a website you'd point them to? Well, there's uh, more than more than one way. So first, uh, I am Thomas, and the last name is Macauser. M O U K A W S H E R. And I'm at thomasmacauser.com. So that's one way to find it. And then, of course, uh, the book is available for pre-order on, uh, on Amazon. The Common Flaw is there. And you, you could just probably Google the Common Flaw. Google that in my name. Uh, you'll get to Amazon and you'll, you'll find the book. And I hope people do find the book. And if they like it, tell their friends. Well, thank you so much to Judge McCausher for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And thank you to you, my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast listening app. And if you have any suggestions for future reads, you can always contact me at books at abajournal.com. 